Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, we're going to talk about land and buying land to put your van on. Did you know you needed to buy land to put your van on? I didn't either, but I'll tell you the story, I promise. We'll also talk about putting vents under your van and why that might not be the best idea, a tale from the road involving some magic, and a product review of the Kori Very, Very Big Fridge Freezer. Hello everyone, welcome back. Thank you for being here. I've had a very strange week. I thought that I'd be working on the van and I'd have pictures to show you and a video of the bed that I keep talking about and all that, but actually, a little tiny idea blossomed into something crazy, and I'm going to tell you about it. So as I've said many, many times, it's been very difficult for me to work on the van here. I do have a parking space at my condo in Chicago, but it's a very tight parking space. I can't really do any kind of work on my van in that parking space if it means I have to open the doors at all. And I can't open the back doors at all at all because they're right up against a retaining wall. So what I normally do is take the van and drive it to a Menards or a Home Depot or Ikea or or something like that and try to do work there. But frankly, it's a pain in the butt. It is taking me so long to build the van because of this. And it's it's distracting. It's I'm in the house and I look outside and it's 14 degrees and it's windy and I'm going to have to move the van. And so for that and a whole bunch of other reasons that I've talked about in the past, I am way behind on this van build project. So just as a lark, I started looking around for pieces of land. Now, I had already searched Chicago for garages I could rent, and it was just completely cost prohibitive. Anything that could come close to working was about $1,000 a month. And I thought, well, what if I just bought a piece of land that didn't have anything on it? It's just a piece of land that I could drive to and work on the van and maybe put a shed up or something. And I found a lovely little piece of property in Indiana, not far from the sand dunes, and it was $8,000. And I thought, hmm... That's not terrible. I mean, after all, it's $8,000 for a piece of land. It's not like you're going to lose a whole ton of money on that normally. And I looked into it and looked into it. And then I was like, oh, and started looking at some other things. And then I talked to my wife about this idea. And then she said, well, what if we got a place that had water on it? Now, she has always wanted to have kind of a little cabin on the water thing. But in Chicago, despite the fact that we have really big lakes here... Cabins on water are crazy expensive, especially if they're within a couple hours of Chicago. I mean, we're talking, you're really not going to get into a cabin on the water for anything less than $200,000. I mean, you might find something, but really, you're looking at $200,000. And that's for a little cabin that doesn't really have any space and may not actually be able to fit the van. So we went and looked at a few properties that maybe might work, and then I found this property... That kind of changed everything, and we bought it. Well, we, we signed a contract on it. We haven't actually closed on the contract, so I don't want to jinx it, but we bought this crazy piece of property, and uh, you're going to be hearing about it if you keep listening to this podcast. So we live in Chicago, and about two hours south there and west, it's, it's southwest, two hours southwest, there is a place called LaSalle County. 
LaSalle County is well known in the area because it is the home of Ottawa, which is a town of some size, but also it's the home of Starved Rock, which is one of the few natural beauty places that you can drive to within an hour or so of Chicago. In fact, I will talk about that later in the podcast. So this is kind of not a commuter town. It's too far from Chicago to commute to, but it has its own stuff going on and a whole lot of nature opportunities. In fact, the Illinois River flows right through this region. Now, if you haven't heard of the Illinois River, or maybe you have, you have to know a couple of things. First off, there's a bunch of Illinois rivers in the country. There's one in Oklahoma, there's one in Oregon, and there's one in, wait for it, Illinois, but the one in Illinois is not attached to the others, and I don't know why they're named that. I suppose I could look it up, but I'm not going to. (laughs) So I'm talking about the Illinois River in Illinois, and it starts kind of, well, where it starts now is a little ambiguous because the river has been heavily modified, and basically it connects the Great Lakes to the Mississippi River. This is a very big active river. It has tugboats on it and lots of barges and lots of recreations. And yes, you can literally kayak from Lake Michigan to the Mississippi River down the Illinois. And and ultimately that whole system is called the Illinois Waterway. Anyway, we bought a part of it. We bought a 4.23 acre parcel with 400 feet of river frontage right in LaSalle Township. And it's on a dead-end road, and it used to be a grain elevator at one time. So there's all these weird concrete structures there. And then apparently after that, it was some kind of a campground with cabins. We are still trying to research the history, but basically what we have is 4.23 acres on the river, and it's going to be the home base for my van. I'm not going to park the van there normally. I'm going to have the van mostly in Chicago because it's also my daily driver. But anytime I have a big project, like if I want to add a Max Air fan or if I want to mess with the bed or something, I can drive down to this property and spend the night or the weekend or even go back and forth the same day because it's close enough. And it has a garage. That's right, folks. This land comes with a garage. No houses, just a garage. And no, it's not big enough for me to pull my massively tall van into, but that's okay. I can do projects in the garage. To say that I'm excited about this is a little bit of an understatement because this opens up a whole new world of van life for me and potentially for others. At this point, I'm not willing to have others come visit, but hey, maybe we could do a little van gathering there someday. I don't know. We'll see. But for right now, I need to get the property ready. So having gone through this process of buying this property almost, I thought I would give you guys an introduction into what it's like to buy property to put a van on, let's say. So we looked at a whole bunch of properties. We've probably looked at 20 different properties, including going out and walking on them. I found a bunch of different ways we could do this. You can buy a lot that is a builder's lot that's in a development and then just not build on it. Now, you'd have to pay attention to the restrictions on that piece of property. And in some cases, the idea of you just parking your van there isn't going to fly. We we found a property we really liked up in Long Grove, Illinois, but that probably wasn't going to fly because every other house in the street was worth a million dollars. 
So what you really want to look for is raw land, they call it. So there's a lot of this available. You can go to landwatch.com or just Google land for sale in your state, and you'll find tons of land available. And some of it's really cheap. We found a piece of land in Illinois that may have worked that was only $4,500. It was about half an acre, and it was on a piece of water that ultimately led to a lake. Nowhere near as nice as what we ended up with, but it was only $4,500. And yeah, we absolutely could have gone there and parked the van on weekends. So this doesn't have to be hugely expensive. But holy cow, is this process filled with pitfalls. So let's talk about those. First off, you're buying land. This is something that is an investment of sorts. It's not like buying a van or a car or a new toy. This property should hold its value. So when you pay for it, you have to consider that this is like buying a stock or something like that. You have to consider, will this property have value later when I want to sell it? It's important because you're going to be spending a lot of money for real property. You don't want to buy something you're going to be stuck with because not only will you have to pay the purchase price, you're going to have to pay taxes on it too. This purchase doesn't end. You're going to continue to pay money on it. And that the amount of that taxes varies greatly according to a whole bunch of different things. So know that when you buy this property, you want to do your due diligence, make sure it's worth the money you're paying and know that you're going to pay taxes on it and try to figure out what that is ahead of time. Okay. So you found a piece of property. It looks great. I mean, heck, you can find 40 acres in Nevada for like $4,000. That's not that hard to do. You're like, this is awesome. I've got all this land and there's an abandoned mine on the property. And okay, before you get all excited, take a look at that property. Does it have a road going to it? <laughs> because in Nevada, where I did look for properties just for chuckles, a lot of the property for sale doesn't have roads. You literally can't get to your property <laughs> except by a helicopter, or if you're lucky, an ATV, or what you have to do is buy an easement on a neighboring property if they will let you, <laughs> and they may not. So you basically have to see the rancher next door knock on the door and say, excuse me, Mr. Ranger, sir, I bought the land behind your house, and I would like to build a road across your property and slam. No, you can't have that road, or maybe you can. It depends on how much he wants. So yeah, watch out for that. Make sure you can access the property. If you can access your pro the property with a road, know that there may not be an apron or a driveway to get to that property. You have to worry about that too. The property we looked at in Long Grove, Illinois was a nice piece of property, but it did not have a way to actually drive on the property from the road. That would mean we'd have to call in a bulldozer and some truckloads of fill, and we're talking a few thousand dollars here just to build access to the property. Oh, and then did you want utilities? Oh, let's talk about utilities because that's a whole other beast. The basic three utilities you have to worry about are electric, water, and sewer or septic, however that's going to be handled. And a lot of these properties are nowhere near any of those things. So if you want them, you have to have lines run, pipe drilled. It, it could be incredibly expensive. Now, the property we bought, it has an abandoned well, and it already has power. There's power to the lot. We can literally just call the power company and turn on the power. So we're good there. It's next to a river. I'm not too worried about digging a well. I think that's going to be pretty easy. But septic could be a concern. 
there are a lot of EPA regulations about septic systems near rivers, and we might get bit by that. So that's something we have to worry about. But if you bought that land out in Nevada, water, you may not be able to get any at all. You see, if you buy the land, you also have to worry about what's under the land, and those things can be sold separately. The minerals under the land is called mineral rights. That's a different deed. And there's also the water. And depending on what part of the country you buy in, you may not own the water. So any water that falls on that land, we're talking about rainwater here, you may not have the rights to that water. Never mind a well or any kind of river that goes through there. So buying land to park a van on sounds like a great idea, but there are a ton of pitfalls. If anyone is seriously thinking about doing this idea, let me know and I will share with you what I have learned and I, I will continue to share in the podcast as this process goes through. Right now, I think we're in good shape. This was an expensive piece of land. This was not a $4,000 piece of property. It's a substantial investment and we have to be very careful that we can sell this land if we have to. So we have to make sure that a house can be built on it. We may not build the house, or we might, we'll see. But we have to make sure a house can be built on it. Because this would actually be a really nice home site for somebody. It's close enough to town and close enough to the interstate that that's certainly possible. So... Stay tuned for news of this very unusual property we bought. And again, if you are interested in this idea, the idea of buying a piece of property for your van, kind of a home base, talk to me. Let's talk, let's share ideas, and uh, we'll see what happens. Tech Talk. So I have a video up on YouTube about my NV200, and one of the things people comment on a lot is the vent I installed behind the license plate. So in the rear of this van, now, all right, let's back up here. If you're not familiar with an NV200, this is a very small Nissan van, and it has barn doors in the back. One's a little bigger than the other. One of those barn doors holds the license plate. And I installed a vent behind the license plate so that when I turned on the vent on the roof, I could get some air in there. And it would basically just come through the license plate. And a lot of people love this idea and they comment, oh, how'd you do that? That's great. Well, the way I did it was simple. I drilled a big hole in the door and then put spacers on the license plate so it stuck out a little bit, put a piece of filter in the hole, and then covered it up with a register vent from Home Depot on the inside. And it worked fine. It worked great. But, but, very, very important. Have you noticed that cars and vans don't come with vents in the back door or under the van? I mean, why not, right? You've got this cooler air under there, and it would be very stealth. Why not put a vent under your van? That sounds great, right? Well, the reason is very simple. Exhaust lives there. <laughs> Basically, under your van is considered to be an exhaust zone. You do not want to be sucking anything in from under there, especially if you have a diesel heater. One of the things in the instructions of diesel heaters that a lot of people overlook is that the exhaust is supposed to stick outside the edge of the van. That is, it's not supposed to be just under the van. It's supposed to stick out the side. Now, that makes it obvious and ugly, and a lot of people like to hide it under their van. But what happens is the exhaust gases pool under the van, and if you have any kind of hole, they can get inside your van. And that includes a hole you made for your stealth vent. In the vent I did, the license plate vent, there's the danger that while you're driving, exhaust gases will kind of make an eddy behind the van and then go through that vent into your van and then you're in trouble. Now, because I knew this, I, I knew this when I did this. <laughs> 
So I made a cover for the vent. It was a magnetic cover, and I was always sure to have that magnetic cover on there before I ever drove. If I were to do that vent again, I would do something actually more secure somehow. I, I don't know what I would do. So if you're thinking about putting a vent under your van or through the rear license plate like I did, or even just in the back doors, know that exhaust gases are a problem and make sure you have a way to close that vent securely and you never ever drive or use your diesel heater with it open. Tales from the road. So this is a little bit of, um, well, all right, I'll tell you this tale, but this is not necessarily a happy tale. So, uh, as I've said many times, I used to work for James Randi, the magician, James the Amazing Randi. You can Google him. He's all over the place. There's a movie about him on Netflix called An Honest Liar. An amazing person, no pun intended. But I knew him in his later years. I think when I first met him and started working for him, he was 75, I think. He was not young. Which was wonderful because he had a whole wealth of experiences he could share with me, including a lot of history of magic. And while I'm not a magician, I know a lot about magic and how magic works because I did study magic. So I'm not somebody who's going to go around revealing secrets and magicians trusted me with their secrets because I had taken all these courses and Randy also trusted me. So he had no problem showing me how tricks worked, even though some of these tricks he had invented himself. In fact, I, I still have one that I treasure. Well, so Randy's office was this massive office that was not very neat. <laughs> it was pretty messy, to be honest. And periodically, the staff would go in and help him neaten it up. And one of those times, I was in there and I encountered these rings. <laughs> now, if you've ever seen magic, you probably know what I'm talking about. It's a trick called the linking rings. And there are three solid rings, and the magician makes them link and unlink and do all kinds of amazing things, pun not intended, again, and how does it work? Because, you know, he shows you that the rings are solid, etc., etc., etc. Well, I know how it works because Randy showed me. But it was the very last time he ever showed anybody. You have to understand that this guy was a stage magician. He was on stage performing all over the world. He had done everything hundreds and thousands of times. He knew his stuff. And for him to do the linking rings routine was like you or I tying our shoes. We don't think about it. It just happens. So after he showed me the mechanics of how linking rings works, he showed me the routine. Except he couldn't. He no longer knew how to do it. And you could see the look on his face that he had lost something that was integral to his life. He knew that the magician he was, he could no longer be ever again. Now, I don't know if he could have practiced and gotten back into it, but I did get that sense of recognition from him that he had moved on from that part of his life. Now, he was still with it. It was sharp as a tack. He knew everything about magic. We used to watch YouTube videos that astounded people and like two seconds in the video, we said, oh, I see how they did that and pointed out and I'd be like, oh my God, I never would have thought of that. But he couldn't do the linking rings anymore. And this is one of those things that even starting magicians generally have mastered. 
It was a sad and touching and somehow poignant moment that I was privileged to share with him. It was just he and I, nobody else was there, and basically nobody else knew about this. But I know he never performed the Linking Rings ever again, and I was the last person to ever see him try. And, well, I just feel like that's kind of special. So I thought I would share it with you. Randy died a couple of years ago, and uh, he's not going to be embarrassed by my sharing this. But everything's temporary, and it's a good thing to keep in mind at least once in a while. A place to visit. So I mentioned Starved Rock before, and well, let's talk about it. The property I'm buying is less than a 10-minute drive from this place, which is one of its appeals. And it's got a strange name, right? Starved Rock? Well, if you go down the Illinois River far enough, you will see this rock coming up out of the riverbank. And that's an unusual thing in Illinois. After all, this is the second flattest state in in the country. We don't have a lot of rocks. And it has this legend that one Indian tribe chased another Indian tribe up on top of the rock and basically laid siege to them over winter, and they all starved to death, hence the name Starved Rock. Now, there's a whole bunch of other legends about that, and, well, they're legends. But the area itself is fascinating because it's exactly not what you expect to find in Illinois. There's tons of hiking, there's a massive river, and there are canyons and caves, and massive trees, and all kinds of wildlife. And boy, if you come to Chicago and spend some time here, and you're just like, hmm, I really would like to see some trees. Not that there aren't trees in Chicago, but you know what I mean. Starved Rock is maybe 90 minutes away from Chicago. It's totally something you could drive to and visit in the same day, and get out there in nature, and actually see stuff that's kind of national park worthy, although it's only a state park. It also has a little bit of dark history. There was a pretty grisly murder there, and there's a movie about that on, I think it's Netflix right now. You can just search Starved Rock documentary and you'll find it. And you can actually visit the site of the murders, if that's your thing. But really, it's all about the nature. So, yes, Illinois has canyons and mountains and big rocks you can climb on, and a lot of them are in Starved Rock, which isn't far from Chicago. So if you're ever in the area... Go ahead and check it out. I'll have a link in the show notes. It's called Starved Rock. I think you can find it. But uh, yeah, check it out. I'm going to be there all the time now, apparently. Product review. So, um, you know I did a product review of the Set Power fridge, and that's my main fridge. But I had a fridge before that, and I never did a review of it. I talked about it a little bit, so I'm going to give you the full review here today. This fridge is the Kori 53 quart, that's 50 liters, dual zone fast cooling freezer. And Kori is spelled K O H R E E. And it's actually fairly similar to the Set Power fridge, except it's much bigger. This thing is huge. And it's a dual zone fridge freezer. So basically, you can have some frozen food and some fresh food, and it's all in one unit. Now, it works fine. For what it is, it absolutely works fine. And I'm going to sound very negative going forward, but I really shouldn't. Know that this fridge is fine. If you need a big fridge that's mostly freezer, this is a perfectly fine fridge to get. And it's only 300 bucks, which isn't bad. But I was very excited about the set power fridge because it overcomes a lot of the problems this one had. And let me tell you about them. 
First, and this is, seems like a petty thing, this is a chest-style fridge that opens long ways. That is, the hinge is at one of the narrow ends, so you have this really big door that opens from one end. That's fine, but the controls are behind that door, and they're turned around, so they're facing away from the fridge. So that means if you're at the end where you're going to open the lid, the controls are backwards just annoyed the crap out of me. <laughs> it seems like a minor thing, but I couldn't get to the buttons properly, and they were really hard to press. You kind of had to hold your finger on them until they did something. Eh, anyway, minor stuff. That would not make me pan the freezer or anything. But it had another problem that was the two compartments were totally different sizes. One was maybe 40 liters and the other was 13. That might not even be the right ratio, but the big area was the freezer. Now, I didn't know this until I bought it, and I thought, oh, wow, that is not what I expected. I expected to have mostly fridge and a little bit of freezer. No, it's the other way around. You get a lot of freezer and a little bit of fridge. And that can be fine, but you have to kind of plan for that. You have to realize that you're going to have mostly frozen food with you, and then you're going to have to defrost it before you eat it. And if you're a TV dinner kind of a person, that's great. That's easy. But if you're a veggie person, if you like fresh veggies, that's not so good. But the thing that really I didn't like about this freezer is how tall it is. Holy cow, this thing is so tall. I mean, you will have no problem putting a wine bottle in here. That's not the problem. It's too tall to sit on comfortably as a seat. It's it's 25.75 inches tall, which is, it's just too tall. And the problem with a fridge freezer that height in a smallish van like mine, I, I've got the 144 normal length Sprinter, which is their smallest length van, there's no way to put it under anything. It won't go under the bed unless you crank your bed way up. And being that I have an ambulance, I don't really have cabinets and counters on the sides like you might in another van, so I can't put it under there. Now, this is a problem that could be solved with your build, but I couldn't. <laughs> the only place I could find to put it that made any sense was in the walkway between the cab and the back. And I don't want to put a fridge freezer there. I want to have the walkway. That was one of the reasons I bought this van. So, bottom line is, for $300, you can have a 53-quart fridge freezer that holds a ton of stuff. It works very well. We're able to get it down. I was able to get down to negative 10 Celsius steadily. I actually did a test where I put it on its max cold and let it run for a long time. And that was the coldest it could get, negative 10 Celsius, which is pretty cold. That'll work. And it doesn't use a lot of power. It's like all these 12 volt compressor fridges. It's pretty efficient, but you have to deal with how high it is. And what I'm recommending everybody do now is figure out which fridge you're going to get before you plan your build. Because having a place to put that fridge ends up being a really big deal. And you also need to run power to that spot too. Now like all of them, this one runs on 12 volts or 110 volts, or actually 24 volts too. It, it's, it, it's automatic that way. And I like it. It's not a bad fridge. It's just not the fridge for me. So I'll have a link in the show notes if you're interested in this. Again, it's the Kori 53-liter dual-zone 12-volt compressor fridge. Resource recommendation. I have been on the hunt for van life event pages. And last week I talked about one. But somebody contacted me on Facebook and said, Hey, I have an events page. 
And I looked and like, this, this is what I'm looking for right here. So I'm very excited to tell you about this. It's from Van Life Outfitters. Okay. So that's vanlifeoutfitters.com. And I, again, I'll have a link in the show notes, but I just told you what it was. And they have a link called events. Now this is, this is your fairly standard van life site. I mean, it's a hub for all kinds of things, van life. So it's definitely worth you checking out anyway, but I'm specifically interested in the events because it's open source. Anybody can go in here and add an event. And I think that's what we really need. And uh, looking over this, now, they have past events here, which I kind of wish it didn't, but that's okay. That's easy enough to work through. Each event is labeled in a box. It has the date. It tells you whether it's paid or not, and it tells you what kind of an event there is. For example, coming up next on March 12th is Tiny Fest in California. It's on March 12th and March 13th. It's at the Del Mar Fairgrounds in San Diego. I got all that just by glancing at the page, you know. April 8th, the Moore Expo, which is the Midwest Overlanding and Off-Road Expo. That's April 8th through April 10th in Springfield, Missouri. And then April 14th, there's Camperfest in Chester somewhere. Which Chester is that? It doesn't actually say the state for that one. So let's click through and see what it says. It actually just says Chester. <laughs> so whoever entered this didn't finish it. Ah, and now I see why. Because this person is from the UK and everyone in the UK knows where Chester is, even if we in the US don't. <laughs> so it's international, which is nice. And it lists the prices from 35 pounds. That's nice per person. It's April 14th through April 18th. And 159 people have looked at this so you can see how popular it is. Anyway, this is a great resource for events, and I think it's going to be my main event resource. Not only that, they also link to other event resources here. The one I talked about last week, the VK Vans one, that's, they link those here too. So, yeah, for now, until something better comes along, I proclaim this is the official events source for all things van life from now until something replaces it. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 114. And uh, yeah, who knows what next week's going to hold. Maybe I'll buy an airplane or something. I have no idea. <laughs> Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. <laughs> and I really hope to see some of you guys at some events this summer. Keep in touch and let me know where you're going to be. Until next time, remember the words of Lex Luthor. Sun, stocks may rise and fall. Utilities and transportation systems may collapse. People are no damn good, but they will always need land, and they will pay through the nose to get it. <laughs>